a shame for why am I doing this to my body? I've just gone through a, mm. a you know diagnosis and a treatment to get rid of a cancer from my body. Why am I now putting poison and toxins in? This is in my control because I was desperately fighting for control having had this shock diagnosis. So I would feel so terrible for doing this to myself but then doing it again anyway. So it was a horrible loop and spiral to be in at the time. Life gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons, into lemonade. Because, let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping the Michello on the other side. Let's get juicing. Mim Jenkinson's life was ticking along just as she expected. She had a wonderful husband, a thriving career and two beautiful children. When one day she was diagnosed with a rare aggressive form of breast cancer. After an intense period of treatment, she beat it. But while her body had won the fight, her mind was a mess. She developed PTSD, traumatised that at any moment something could go wrong. She could get sick again and she'd be taken away from her children forever. So she turned to alcohol. It was how she numbed out the anxiety, the stress, the uncertainty. But what felt good at the start eventually became a serious addiction. It was another fight she had to win for the sake of her health, her kids and her marriage. Mim is now sober. She's five years free of cancer and she's never been happier or healthier. She's written a book about her experience, Less Wine, More Time, and she was an absolute delight to speak to. This is a really important listen for all mums and women. Here's Mim. Mim, welcome to the Lemonade Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled we've made this work. There was a few false starts, but we got here. All my fault. (laughs) My apologies. (laughs) I don't know about that, but... (laughs) so glad to be here finally though. How are you doing? Yeah really well um really well at the moment we were just talking before we hit record about what's happening with lockdown at the minute and so I'm in Newcastle and um we have been very lucky so far with not having too many um curfews and so on set upon us and and I, I actually really enjoy the bubble I can say that with the with the privilege of not being affected really with what's happening, but I've I've really enjoyed some time at home and mm. connecting more with the kids and yeah, it's been good so far. Now speaking of that and speaking of your family life, with all my interviews, I love to start with the same question and that is mm. wanting to get a feel of my guest's childhood. So what was it like growing up for you? Can you give me a bit of a yeah, feel for that? I will. We um I mean I had a I had a really happy childhood. I um, we moved around a lot and I think it took me a little while to really make good friendships, but it's been the same case through my entire life. Once I make a friend, then they're a friend for life. <laughs> so we, yeah, we moved around a lot. We lived mainly in the North of England and there was myself and my brother, who's a year older and my mum and dad and just had a very happy childhood. My mum was a teacher and very nurturing and loving and, um, 
they're a big they're a big part of my life now so yeah they only live five minutes away which is super awesome and um just very happy and having a couple of kids myself now as well I met my Australian husband about 14 years ago and moved over here from the UK bullied my parents to come over so now get to see them interact with my kids in the same way that they did with me although with more sugar and treats you now have this hugely Mm. successful business that you run can you give us a feel of I guess how when you got here and how that led to what you're doing now yeah I am so I've been working in recruitment and HR for over a decade and um, absolutely loved it had a lot of passion for it and I, I took a recruitment job when I first moved over here didn't feel the same amount of passion at all and I think especially with it being the first job after a six month sabbatical which had been awesome suddenly I felt very robbed of my time um, so left that one had a few other false starts with some of the recruiters and then I ended up working in the events marketing team at Cancer Council New South Wales which was amazing such an awesome environment and learned so much about marketing and a little bit about digital marketing at the time as well um, then moved back into recruitment, kind of bounced around a little bit between marketing and recruitment roles. And I had my baby, um, my first baby, my daughter, which was awesome. And we always knew we wanted two kids ideally. So we were at the age where, you know, neither of us had really committed to a career and um, she was still very young. So she was only one at the time. And we thought, well, why not? Let's go back to the UK for a little bit, spend some time over there. My husband is half British anyway. So but we'll go on like an extended working holiday, maybe see if we can get pregnant while I'm there as well and spend some time with my parents, let them see my hopefully two kids. And we did that. It it pretty much went to plan. It took a little bit of a (laughs) time to have my second baby, but had him over there, um, which was awesome. And then moved back over here and I intended to go back into a recruitment role. In fact, I had just secured an awesome job with a great company in Newcastle we'd been in Sydney previously. So came back over here. In that time, my parents had decided to move over here as well. So everything was ahead of us. Um, Great job, great company, well paid. We were looking for our forever home. Our family was complete. My parents were moving over. Everything was awesome until I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which completely pulled the rug from under us, as as I'm sure you can imagine. So um, that definitely threw a spanner in the works. Absolutely. You mm. were, it, you noticed it. It was just a normal day, wasn't it? You were in the shower and yeah. you noticed a lump in your breast. Yes. Can you then talk us through what happened next? Yeah. I, and I knew before then that there was something not quite right. Um, we know our bodies quite well and, and I know mine. I mean, I certainly know it now inside and out. Um, but something wasn't quite right. I was weaning my son. I've been breastfeeding him. So I just started work. I was weaning him from breastfeeding entirely. And like when you breastfeed and your boobs are not your own, they're huge. And as they were going down, I kind of felt this lump. And I've been feeling for something that I knew was there before, but um, hadn't realized I've been feeling in the wrong place. So I hadn't been giving myself a really thorough breast exam. Had a lump in the morning and instinctively knew something wasn't quite right with it, but hoped that it was mastitis or a block duct, even Mm. though I had no other symptoms of that. Went to see my GP at the time, who was amazing, who was really reassuring and um, said he, you know, he assumed it would be something like a block duct as well, but sent me to have a biopsy. Um, So I had an ultrasound, then a mammogram, then a biopsy within the space of a few days. 
and then waited and waited and waited for the result, which was only a few days, but felt like a really long time. And I remember sitting in my in the office of my new job, making the call, no, just desperately hoping it was going to be a good news answer, but knowing it wasn't, um, just knowing that good, you know, no news wasn't going to be good news. And she just used the words, the nurse, your doctor would like you to come into the office to see you. And obviously we know what that means most of the time. So the world just fell from underneath me instantly. And I remember ringing my husband, Miles, and saying, I've got cancer. You've got to come and get me. We need to go to the doctors and talk about it. I can't talk about it anymore, but you've got to come right now. And him just being like, what the, like, what, what? And we, he came to get me. We walked to the doctor's office from where I was working, which was probably about a 10 minute walk, which lasted. We just walked in silence. It, it felt like it lasted an hour and yeah, got the news that I had cancer and all of a sudden everything was just on super was- turbo speed. <laughs> What was going through your mind when they told you, they diagnosed you with triple negative breast cancer, which I had to look into. What was going through your mind when they told you this? Yeah. Well, I'd never heard it before, of that one before, even Mm. having worked at Cancer Council and feeling like I was really knowledgeable on all things cancer. Um, I think you become immune to it, or I certainly had in that environment as well. It almost lost a lot of its impact because day in, day out, I was speaking to people with going through that experience. But sitting down with the doctor she um she told me that because of the the kind of cancer it was so it's quite a quote unquote rare and aggressive cancer um she told me that I would probably need a double mastectomy that I would certainly need chemo and radiation and even though I was sat there listening to it all I wasn't really taking too much of it in she was amazing but you know we were just essentially sat in shock and we went home that night and so many tears and my husband was distraught I was you you feel that when you're given a diagnosis like that that your life is going to end that day um and it I just so many kind of images flashing before my mind of all the things I wouldn't get to experience so um oh it was just the craziest feeling when they say your life flashes before your eyes it wasn't the things I had done it was the things I might never get the opportunity to do so it was quite a horrific day and an evening and I remember clearly though waking up the next day and just feeling really calm, really calm and okay. And I'm quite a logical, rational kind of a person anyway, but just thinking, okay, this is what's happened. This is what the doctor says we need to do next to tackle it and it will be okay. And I'll just put one foot in front of the other and get those things checked off. What was treatment like? Can you describe it for us? And how did it make you feel? it was horrible. <laughs> it was just horrendous. Thankfully, I didn't have to have a double mastectomy. I had a lumpectomy to remove the, the cancer. And then they I had six months worth of really, really aggressive chemo. Um, they call the, one of the chemos the red devil because it's red and it's absolutely horrific. Um, however, you know, it, it's there to cure you, but it, it, I won't mess around like it, it isn't good at all. Um, so six months of chemo and then three months of radiation. And then since then, I now have um, every six months, I see either my oncologist or my surgeon just to check that everything's okay. And it'll be five years in at the end of November and all is extremely well. So. Oh, brilliant. (laughs) So good. Oh my goodness. I didn't realize that. Oh, that's such good news to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Can you you describe what that, that whole process does to the mental state of while you're the mother of two very young children? 
Yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, I almost couldn't bring myself to think about it too much at the time. And when I was thinking about the life that I wasn't going to have, it was all about the kids. It was all about, will I see them go to school? Will I see them grow up? Will I be able to give them advice on all these things? Will I attend their weddings? All of, all of that stuff that you just, nobody wants to contemplate those kinds of images and, and scenarios at all. But my son, my daughter was two at the time when I was diagnosed and my son was five and a half months. Oh my so gosh, that's so, so young. young. So, so young. I'm sure it doesn't get any easier as they, as they get older, but they were, it, it was just so young and so unexpected. And um, I actually made the decision not to tell them what was happening. I, I kind of went back and forward. If they'd been older, I would have done. And I lost my hair entirely. I was, um, I mean, I looked dreadful and I, I could barely do very much during treatment apart from sitting and hug them and cuddle them and in fact my mum told my my daughter who kind of understood a little bit that mummy wasn't very well she told her because they would just saw mummy with a bald head <laughs> um, and she told my daughter that the more hugs she gave me the faster my hair would grow <laughs> just the cutest thing that she would keep on giving me hugs because she wanted mummy with long hair again <laughs> That's so, um, so my kids were um my my kids were fine but my mental health was definitely impacted a lot because of them and because of what I was going through when you were told that you know it was you'd beaten it and you're you're in remission did mm. did you feel any sense of relief or did you feel free of cancer's grips or do you think like it you know that it still felt like it was lingering that fear was still very present yeah at the time I felt uh, I felt a lot of relief at the same time when you hear the words remission and when you hear all clear it um it loses a lot of its meaning when it's you going through it because because I still have to have six monthly appointments because the particular cancer I had there isn't like a known cure in that they and for many there you know there isn't they they throw everything at this one and then it's a lot of hoping for the best and so um, and because I'd looked, I'd made the big mistake of looking at Google to look for mm. other stories of survivors and the stories were not great. You know, if I could go backwards in time and have just never taken to Google in the first place, I would have done. But I obviously felt really happy and positive. And for every appointment that I have now, even now, I still, it's like your life is given back to you every time I look forward to that feeling. It's so good. But I, I think I thought I was over things much more than I was. And I was, it was only a couple of years after the, the treatment had finished that I realized that things were definitely not right. And the life that I was living wasn't the way I thought it could be. Um, and I was actually diagnosed with PTSD as well and started to see a psychologist and which definitely helped a lot. But it was at that point that I started to turn to alcohol more to, really I guess try and blur out a lot of the fear and the anxiety that I was feeling and fear that I thought was something I would have to live with forever as well I just accepted that was a part of who I was now and my life would never be as it was before yeah I'd really like to get into that because that's such a huge theme in your book your your Mm. alcohol addiction and how you turn to it to cope but I want to take you right back with that because you talk about in the book that you always loved drinking alcohol. You know, it wasn't something yeah. that you discovered when you were, you were battling with trying to, you know, overcome what cancer, you know, overcoming cancer. You always loved drinking. You said that you used to mm. love getting drunk. What were your earliest memories of drinking alcohol and how did it make you feel when you were drinking? 
Yeah, I um, I mean, my very early memories was that it was disgusting <laughs> in terms of the taste, but that it was the socially accepted thing to do. And um, and therefore, I really, really practiced becoming a great drinker <laughs> because we want to be accepted. We want to have fun. And um, I, I think I start, had my first alcoholic you know, drink around the age of 14 in terms of the, you know, going out and actually having a drink with friends. It was around then that kind of started clubbing at a young age and nothing too crazy. And I think I said in the book as well, I can probably count on one hand the amount of times when I've been absolutely out of it, shit-faced, wasted, drunk. But at the same time, I've always drank a lot. I've always been and I think I had some pride attached to that as well. Like always been the one to be last standing at the end of the night. And um, I loved it. I just love the feeling of being able to let my hair down, have fun, dance like Britney Spears. <laughs> confidence, <laughs> same, same. isn't it? Yeah, it's just a complete confidence. And like a go-to, every, it was the answer to everything. It, it was that instant relaxation, How you know, however old I was, that having a drink meant I could be the person that I wanted to be. Or that's what I was telling myself in my head anyway at the time. And who was that person that you think that it made you? that you weren't without it, I guess. Oh, just, I guess, you know, releasing any fears, inhibitions, Mm. any lacking in self-esteem and confidence, like none of that mattered. I didn't have to make a decision to be happier or to be more confident or to feel better. It was just, I programmed myself, I guess, into into thinking and knowing that whenever I had a drink, all of those things just melted away. Mm. Um, And that, you know, most, most people would say they drink for similar reasons. And I'm not saying that anyone who does the same thing is, is always in the wrong and shouldn't be doing it. But for me, it just got to a point where I was crushing down so many of those ill, you know, bad thoughts and anxieties. And um, instead of tackling them, that it was just making it so much worse over time. And it was definitely time to face up to them and do the work rather than keep blurring it away. You talk in the book about how, um, you know, when you were having, you were undergoing treatment, you didn't feel like it at all. You weren't drinking then. And when you had, you were pregnant with your children, you didn't, you know, it wasn't something you even thought about. Mm. But once you were feeling, starting to feel better and you were in remission, what, what, yeah, what, what made you, I guess, start turning to it and how quickly did it escalate drinking more and more each evening as you, and as you say, yeah. in the, book, 7 PM, the 7 PM would, would come and you'd think, right, this is my time to start drinking. Yes. Oh, hundred percent. I think cause it took about a finished treatment and I'd had, um, I drank a little bit towards the end, but not much. And I remember saying to my husband at the time, and cause we didn't go anywhere you know, we just didn't do anything. We stayed in, I had a low immune system and mm. I looked like shit. <laughs> no hair. Um, and we had two little kids. So even that aside, we, you know, we just didn't really have much of an external social life at that point. So our, our socializing was with each other or friends would come around and we'd have a drink in inside, even before cancer. Like we would just, you know, watch movies and um, watch Game of Thrones, like have our little evenings where we'd have a few glasses of wine and At the time, I think it started with like sharing a bottle of wine with Miles and that's something that we've done for years and it crept up more, much quicker, I think, than I actually thought. It was only looking back that I realised how much it had crept up. Um, I mean, I felt terrible after treatment. Physically, I felt so ill that I didn't even experience hangovers for a long time and I think it was because I felt so poorly anyway that I didn't realise. It all blended (laughs) into one, wow. 
oh, I remember saying to Miles, this might be a perk. Like there might be one chemo perk that I don't get hung over anymore. <laughs> um, that changed though. As time went on and I went, kind of my body kind of returned to normal. But um, I did see, I went to see a GP one day and put me in touch with a, I think she was a mental health nurse. And she was saying to me, you know, how, I said to her, I don't know, I don't think I'm drinking too much, but I know that I want to pull back. Um, it's too much for me that I'm happy with. And she asked me how much I was drinking. And I, I remember giving her the answer and then thinking afterwards, no, it's more than that. And mm. it's been happening for a lot longer than I think as well. And even as time went on, I kind of continued. And then I refer back in that book to that conversation with her because I, I thought it was a recent thing, like when, when I first decided, made the decision to quit and people would ask me why, and I'd say, oh, it's only been a, you know, three or six months that I've been drinking too much, but then I realised, well, no, that conversation with that mental health nurse was actually a year and a half ago, so I've been consistently drinking too much, too frequently, for way too long, and um, yeah, it really kind of hit home that this... I had to get a grip on it like it was it could it could only get worse and if it continued as it was that was bad enough when you would you know open a bottle at 7 p.m that was your time and it would start from mm. there how effective was it in eliminating any of those dark scary thoughts and just making everything feel better how you know yeah, I can I imagine mean, it's just so effective <laughs> isn't it in the worst possible so way just unscrewing the cap on the bottle of wine was enough to mm. know that everything was going to be okay. You know, the whole no one's coming to save you, like that was coming to save me. Everything was going to be okay because it's that relief that you feel at the end of the day when your kids go to sleep. Um, you know, just that, oh, I can relax on the sofa, Netflix, whatever, whatever it is. And so unscrewing the cap was the first thing. And I remember drinking really quickly as well. It was like I had to, I desperately wanted to get this to the place of peace as quickly as possible. So it wasn't that I was drinking to get wasted. Mm. I just wanted to blur out the thoughts to slow down my mind and all the thought patterns and the, the habitual kind of thoughts of fear and anxiety. And I wanted to get there as quickly as possible. And so, you know, a couple of glasses in large glasses that I probably drank extremely quickly um, and everything was awesome again you know like I, I was in my happy place and everything was okay but then we'll go to bed thinking why have I done this again you know why why did I do this again I didn't need to have that last glass I didn't need to drink at all but I certainly didn't need to keep going if I'd have just paused and been at the point where I was happy I could have stopped and then I would wake up the next day with so much shame and mm. um, for not being able to control it again and and then of course that's just on top of all of the emotions and the PTSD that I was shutting down anyway so it made everything so much worse so mornings um became most mornings just that horrible no one wants to be in like guilt and shame that horrible feeling to wake up feeling like that it doesn't set the tone of the day to be <laughs> that good yeah, and you probably just then by that night wanting to be rid of that feeling as well. What yeah. what kind of role does shame play in addiction? For me, it was um, again an emotion that I just didn't want and I wanted to get rid of. And so, rather than looking and kind of reverse engineer why am I feeling shame? What's causing it? What brought me to that place? What can I do differently? What started this? And what are the triggers? Instead, I would just blot over that feeling as well. So. Um, that was my personal experience of shame, just and and shame for 
oh, the shame for why am I doing this to my body? I've just gone through a, mm. a you know diagnosis and a treatment to get rid of a cancer from my body. Why am I now putting poison and toxins in? Well, this is in my control because I was desperately fighting for control, having had this shock diagnosis. So I would feel so terrible for doing this to myself, but then doing it again anyway. Mm. Um, so it was a horrible loop and spiral to be in at the time. And then are there any moments as you're starting to realize, you know, this isn't, this isn't the path I want to be on. This isn't what I want to be doing, but you'd be in this kind of shame spiral. And then it would, you'd be counting down, as you say in the book till 7 PM when you could open it again Mm. and you could, I guess, go back to that happy place as you described it before, as it started getting to this state, were there, are there any occasions that stand out in your mind that made you just feel oh gosh what's happening you know this is it's really put everything into perspective I I really like how you talk in the book about um when you were vomiting and your children were asking you what was wrong and and you know is that probably the one of the moments that stands out most that makes you yeah oh it definitely was and and like I say I've only had about five maybe occasions I talk about them all in the book don't I um when when I have been really out of it but I that was the day after New Year's Eve well it was the day after that so the day on New Year's Day yeah on New Year's Day I um we were at a friend's house we'd had such a great New Year's Eve with them we'd all been drinking not the kids obviously just the adults (laughs) (laughs) we'd had an amazing time um and then the next day on New Year's Day when everyone else in the universe was starting their new, you know, health and fitness regimes. Um, we, we went back to drinking again. We were still in kind of party mode and having fun after the kids had gone to bed. And the next day, I don't, I just drank way too much that night. And the next day, (coughs) excuse me, the next day on the way, um, home in the car. And in fact, it took me hours to get up. I was in such a state but we were driving home and I had to get Miles to pull over on the side of the road and I was sick on the side of the road. And it was the most mortifying experience. One of the worst, one of the worst experiences in parenthood I've had of having my kids in the back while we pulled over. And of course they didn't know why I was being sick. They just thought that I wasn't well. And my son said, you know, what's wrong with mummy? And I remember my daughter saying, no, it's okay. She's just feeling a bit car sick because she gets car sick. And I just sat there in the worst physical and mental state of like far out something has got to change I don't know how but I can't be I can't put myself or my kids in this position ever again mm. um it wasn't the I think it was the catalyst definitely that that did make everything change but I didn't quit at that point I still continued to drink for a couple more weeks um but that was definitely the big moment of wow this is this is impacting everything now. It isn't just an internal issue. Now it's um, like I've been outed um, to yeah. the world. And what was, what happened next? What was the path like to get sober? You said it was a few more weeks. Like what was the tipping point yeah. and what did you do that next? Well, it was in my mind from then. And I'd spoken to my GP and to my psychologist who I was still seeing then. And I think I hadn't really kind of hammered home how serious the the drinking issue was at that point but they were aware of it and my husband knew how much I was drinking as well but I thought right what would I do if it was any other anything else that I wanted to change and I'm really into 
personal development and self-development and I love Audible so much. I'm always <laughs> listening to a book. Every it's so good for mums, isn't it? So, it's just so good. It for us though, yeah, it's so good. Um, and I had a look on the um, on my Audible app on the search and I think I typed in like how to cut down drinking or how to drink less or something like that. And this book came up at the top, which was um, the easy way for women to stop drinking or how to stop drinking for women. It was some, And I just thought, well, that is just talking to me. I do not want to quit in, in a million years. There's no way I enjoy drinking too much, but maybe either I'll cut down, either I'll drink this and I'll cut down, or maybe I will quit because this book is telling me that I'll, I'll want to do it. So I was really curious to see what happened. Um, read the book over, well, listened to the book over a two week period, just a little bit every night until I'd finished it. And the the concept of the book is that you, it just undoes all of the brainwashing or the thoughts that we have, the habitual thoughts about drinking and alcohol and what we think it does for us. And I kept a really open mind. Some of the things that I really hit home with me, um, but I kept an open mind. You, you drink as normal throughout the book if you choose to, and then you take your last drink at the end of the book. So I knew that I was kind of coming up to that point with thinking, is this going to work? This is a bit strange. Like just, but again, really open mind to see what happened. And then the night before I finished the book, I had my last drink. I just knew it was the last one. I had like half a glass of wine and saying to Mars at the time it just tastes like poison it's the strangest strangest feeling ever I mean it was cheap wine but, <laughs> but you didn't it notice it tasted like wine. poison before that's yeah, the difference before it was delicious um, <laughs> I remember drinking I couldn't finish the glass it was the strangest feeling but I didn't tell him that I was reading the book I didn't tell anybody that I was planning to cut down or quit I just didn't want the pressure for any from anybody else so finished the book the next day and just thought, well, like, wow, I've, I've quit. That's so, that's awesome. But that's so strange, but that was way easier than I thought it was going to be. And, and I mean, I did have moments of it not always being too easy for sure, but it was way easier than I thought. And Miles came home from work and I worked from home and I said to him, right, just so you know, I've quit alcohol for good. Um, I would quite like it if you didn't, <laughs> didn't drink either for at least a couple of weeks, like give me a fighting chance at making this work. And he was like, oh, well, okay, two weeks I'll do, but I'm not going to quit forever. And I said, well, you know, that's, that's fine. I don't mind that at all. That's okay. So we didn't drink for two weeks and actually he didn't, he, he's had a couple of drinks in the beginning, but he hasn't drank since then either. He wow. decided to quit too. Yeah. Can you tell us about PTSD? What was that like for you? What, how did that, I guess, manifest yeah. in your life? For me, it manifested with negative thinking and constant thoughts of when and if the cancer would return and um, any kind of physical symptom I had and was, uh, it's back, is it back? And just especially when it came to decision-making because I couldn't plan ahead and now I know I don't need to plan ahead. I only need to focus on one day at a time, as they say. It isn't, it's a cliche, but it's such a strong one. Um, but it came down to everything. Every, every thought of my day um, would be about cancer and cancer returning and what's that symptom and somebody else has been diagnosed and someone else I know has now progressed to a different stage and it literally all encompassed me. So I couldn't see anything else apart from that Every, like it was just this constant thought pattern going around in my head and to be able to lift that now is just the liberation and the same with quitting alcohol the liberation and the freedom that I have now 
is is immense. I just I didn't think it was possible, but that's how PTSD played out for me. It was, mm. and it got worse throughout the day as well, mm. particularly at nighttime. And I've always been prone to insomnia for different reasons, anyway. But I would just lie in bed, wide awake playing all sorts of scenarios in my head all around my mortality or or even that of the mortality of those close to me um and it it isn't a way to live you know feeling those things but that that's how it was for me it didn't come out in I know it's different for everybody it didn't come out in anger or depression necessarily um it was more those really habitual doom and gloom and negative thoughts. When you then stopped drinking and it gave you the space to process all of this, which is just huge. Mm. And I know you've said you're working with a psychologist, a therapist at the time. What, what was that personal development journey like? And I guess how it, I'm sure it wasn't an easy walk in the park just because you weren't drinking anymore. And going deep yeah. into that must have been really difficult without anything to distract you as well. Yeah. It re- you know, it was, but at the same time, without the alcohol, it also did make it easier. So I was nervous to start the work, which I knew was going to be work. But at the same time, I didn't have um, alcohol kind of holding me back from being able to do what I needed to do and think, think, think things through. Um, and I started working with a coach. He's a transformational coach called Jim Fortin. He is amazing. Um, in his program where we, we talk a lot about identity and I wanted to be somebody else. I just, I wanted to be happier. I wanted to, I wanted to be calmer and I wanted to find peace. But the PTSD and these thoughts of cancer were really holding me back from that. Um, But within that, I just, I learned so much that I could actually have, you know, have choice. We all have choice and we all get to choose even what we do with the thoughts that we have. And I started to work a lot on processing the thoughts that were coming through in my mind every single day, choosing to believe what I wanted to and dismissing the rest and focus really on who I wanted to be in the future. And I wanted to be healthy and happy and here for my kids and carefree and confident and strong and all of those things that most of us do want. But by focusing more on those things and dismissing the things that the thoughts that were no longer working for me, that really helped, you know, over time, then I started to really become the person that I did want to be as well. But it's ongoing work, um, mm. you know, yeah. <laughs> and I still have thoughts, of, I still have thoughts of cancer returning now, I still feel lumps and bumps and different symptoms and think what's that and but I don't Im- immediately go to that place of doom anymore. Now I'm just I know it's a very overused phrase, but I'm now much more curious about why thoughts are coming through and um, what I can do with those things and how to move my focus and my attention away from them to something else mm. so that over time those thoughts become less and less and less yeah um, and it's been I mean it's been a huge journey and it's ongoing for sure but when I thought about the person I was before cancer and the fact I'd never be that mim that version of me again from now going through this journey and from also from quitting alcohol I'm now way happier than I ever was before and way more free now I'm I'm so much more of the person I wanted to be than I was before. Um, so yeah, that if I could go back in time and tell myself that to be more hopeful because that was possible, um, it's been a big change. Oh, that gave me tingle so much of what you said then. <laughs> it really, really hit deep for me. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Mums are such a target when it comes, and you talk mm-hmm. about this extensively in the book, 
such a target when it comes to drinking and wine culture. And it almost seems synonymous that being a mum, being a mum is synonymous with drinking. And I don't know when that, how that happened. Why? Why does, why is this a thing? Yeah. I mean, it's the brands and the advertisers, isn't it? That perpetuate this for sure. And we're much savvier to that now as well. Um, but it is a thing. It's a, this whole mums are powered by coffee during the day and wine by night or gin. Gin's another one, isn't it? I mean, I don't drink coffee either, so I'm <laughs> broken the mould. <laughs> but there's, and, and I, hands up, I, I used to buy into all that 100% as well, you know, sharing the memes on Facebook and Instagram and even creating them myself and joking about, you know, mummy needs wine and I can't wait till 7pm and the kids are in bed and um wine o'clock like all of those things but now I know looking back that that was actually a massive issue for me and it seeing those memes now it it triggers me it does and for most people it wouldn't for you know let's say 99% of people they can see those memes have a joke and and carry on but for me in that minority I would see the jokes and the phrases around we're all drinking wine we're all drinking to excess to deal with being a mum and that would give me permission that I would give myself permission because I would just assume well everyone else is doing it so me drinking every night is okay and me drinking to excess every night is okay but it wasn't because for me and my family it it definitely was having negative repercussions but um it's totally perpetuated by social media and by you know the big websites and brands particularly who do want to push the message that mums need wine I mean you don't see dads need wine or dads need beer so Mm -hmm. sorry (laughs) we know it isn't true you know we know that we don't need alcohol or if we do perhaps there's something else underlying there um and I'm not completely against anyone drinking alcohol as long as they're happy with it and comfortable and isn't having a negative effect on them or anyone around them um but for me, I wish I wish a lot of those messages would just stop now. I think it's really dangerous. Do you think it's symptomatic of something that women, mums are feeling or I don't like to use the word lacking, but if this, you know, this is happening to so many women behind closed doors, is it symptomatic that there's something more at play here, that they're not feeling supported or I don't know, that they're not being... I don't know, I guess appreciate women aren't being appreciated as they should be, or I don't know what, what is it that's making so many women, I guess, drink so yeah. much behind closed doors. I um, and again, I can only really bring this back down to me, but I felt becoming a mum, I lost, I, I did lose a, a big sense of who I was. And um, Amy Taylor Cabaz, the writer writes about matrescence and about how that changed from when we become a woman to when we become a mother just completely shifts who we are, how we see ourselves, what we lose, what we gain, how the world sees us. And I think that's a massive piece that there isn't enough education on. So I lap up everything that she says. Um, And I think it took some time again for me to realize how things had changed in my life. And all of a sudden, you know, it it isn't just that you're dealing with, you're responsible for, for children as well, but you are, an entirely different person your every thought is um, about your children and you know try for me it was trying to control as much as possible of, of what was happening in my life and keeping myself safe and my family safe and 
there's only so many things that we can control. Control is quite the illusion for most things, but desperately wanting to, for everything to always be okay. And my kids were always in my mind and worries about them, worries about things that had never even happened yet. <laughs> so I'm, sure, I'm sure you can relate to, you know, you're constantly thinking about other people. And um, it was, as I love being a mum. And as much as I take so many opportunities to to spend time in gratitude and and peace and loving it at the same time I'm still always constantly thinking about things I could be doing differently am I doing enough am I a good enough mum could I have done things better is she better than me oh gosh she's doing this differently with her kids I should be doing that too like all of the thoughts constantly and then there's the missing piece of matrescence of who the hell am I now anyway um so it's you know it's perpetuated from by society for sure but it's within us as well and we just get caught up especially in the early years of motherhood when it's go 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 constantly I'm sure it continues but I can only speak for the first seven so far um you know I just didn't take enough time to really think about who I was anymore and and what I wanted and who I wanted to be so yeah I think that many people can probably relate to that yeah that really yes you nailed that answer absolutely that makes so much sense what should what do you think in light of that then should be like how can we be supporting women more who may be uh drinking to problematic levels Mm. what should we yeah what what's the answer I suppose yeah and you know the answer isn't necessarily that everyone should quit (laughs) for sure I'm not on on a soapbox to try and persuade other people to do that um but I think that actually having these kinds of conversations and talking about it is really beneficial and really helpful and I um personally just like to share that there's another way um and I tell you there's one message that I really try and share in um all of my posts and conversations is that I don't feel deprived I never, ever feel deprived. I never feel that I've lost anything. In the early months, I did have occasions of it's not fair. I'm in mourning. She can drink and I can't. But I can hand on heart tell you, I feel so much better for not drinking. And my life is so much better that I never have even a second of wishful thinking for the past. But I think that just being able to speak more openly about the things that we are all going through to... um, to find opportunities to talk through and to have other people listen to us as well and to know that there are alternatives to drinking alcohol as well um, i wish that the memes would stop for sure they really do obviously i'm hypersensitive to them so they really do trigger me whereas they wouldn't for most people but i think if we can at least be a little bit more aware before we share those kinds of posts and memes of the impact it might have to that small minority and maybe just consider is that a good reason to perhaps not share it or not create the meme in the first place um that's one thing but really just keeping the conversation open and um, doing as much as we can to look after our health and our mental health as possible. With that being said, what would, if there are women listening who do feel like maybe they're drinking more than they would like to be. And, you know, as you said, Mm. maybe not, don't want to cut it out in, in, in its entirety, but maybe want to cut back. What should they do? What's the next step? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly always happy for anyone to get in touch with me for a chat. Um, but also, I really recommend the book I read. So it's the Alan Carr book, how to, I think it's called The Easy Way for Women to Stop Drinking. Um, obviously, in, in my book, Less Wine, More Time, I talk about my experience. And many um, readers who, who've read my book or Alan's book have said that they haven't necessarily quit at the end, but they have significantly cut back. 
I would recommend speaking to your GP as well or having a conversation with someone who you can trust, whether it's your partner, your friends, your mum, just actually vocalising because to me, the tur- another turning point was when I actually said out loud, this is how much I'm drinking, this is how often it is, this is how it makes me feel and I think I'd like to change. Like that was just enough to to be a starting point as well, as, as hard as it is. Um, and you don't need to go all out and tell the whole universe as I did, for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's probably excessive for most people. Um, but just talking about it generally, I think, is, is definitely going to be helpful. I'd love to now talk about your book, Less Wine, More Time. What do you hope that people, what was your, when you're writing it, what were you hoping that people get out of it when they finish it? Yeah, you know, I was, I was really hoping, and I think that this has happened, is that people would see that an issue or an unhealthy relationship with alcohol didn't mean that you were, a, you know, that stereotypical raging alcoholic that rolled out of bed and grabbed the bottle of vodka, that actually um, an unhealthy relationship with alcohol is more common than you would think. And um, my family and friends and, you know, people would have looked to me and, and told me that they thought I was fine, that there were no mm. issues, that it, you know, they they just didn't see that I was doing anything differently than they were doing and they didn't realise what I was going through in my in my head certainly and behind closed doors so I just hope that the book helps to um normalize the conversation and also just have people realize that there's an alternative way as well and whether you choose to quit or cut back on alcohol don't assume that that's going to be a life filled with mourning and deprivation because um for me it's just such I can't speak highly enough about how different my life is now and how much more positive and um yeah but more than anything just to normalize that conversation so people know that there's an alternative way now I finish my interviews with the same question and that is what would the mim now tell the mim in her darkest moments when it all felt very I'm sure it Mm. felt very dark and very frightening yeah if I could just go back and say that the life that you um, wanted to have you can it is within your reach but it, it could even be better than that if I'd have known that at the time I think I was settling for a life of um, unhappiness really but at the time I you know I felt I felt grateful but if I at the same time just was settling for a, half a life and if I could go back and say now there's so much more there's so much more happiness and freedom waiting for you just keep going and um talk to people talk things through and be open it's going to be okay (laughs) you know every everything is going to be okay and a phrase that Jim Fortin my coach says is that everything is 100% possible 100% of the time and it's a phrase that I absolutely live by now because it's true it's true it's all within our reach doesn't always feel like that when you're in those depths of despair but um, I, you know, and even now when I have my moments, I just think about that and think everything's been okay in the past. Everything has been fine and it will be fine in the future. Oh, what incredible advice to finish on. That is so incredible. Thank you. Oh, all the, all the tingles throughout my body when you were saying that. So goodness me, thank you so much for being so brave and vulnerable and candid with this, not only in this conversation, but in your book as well. And I know you do on your Instagram and your social media channels, you you're changing people's lives so I'm sure that must feel you know that it was all worth it in this crazy way it really does it really does thank you so much my absolute pleasure thank you so much once again 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lemonade. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mim. I'll pop links to her Instagram, her website and her book in the show notes. As always, you can connect with me at Elizabeth O'Neill. And I ask every week, but if you have a spare second, I'd be so grateful if you could hit subscribe, hit five stars and leave a positive review. It helps boost the podcast in the rankings and will mean hopefully more people find this podcast. Thank you so much once again. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll speak next week. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.